And for individuals who are non-white, we tend to associate the more negative racial stereotypes with those groups. So when members of those groups don't fit those negative stereotypes of their groups, rather than challenging those stereotypes in the first place, we're more likely to just exceptionalize the individual or just label them as acting white. So it's their, their fault and it's them that's kind of the deviant rather than challenging the stereotype in the first place. So that's more of kind of the macro level kind of issue that needs to be addressed here is how kind of norms play out in our dynamics of how we view and perceive each other. Hello and welcome to Preoccupied. Today we are talking with Dr. Miles Durkee, a professor at the University of Michigan and a researcher on racial bias and discrimination. Dr. Durkee uses what we call qualitative methods in his research, and this is not a new vocab term for, for our show. Uh, you know, we've talked to several researchers before, like uh, Dr. Wong in our last episode, in our first episode, uh, Sai Awaluatumi, uh, and now Dr. Durkee, who all use qualitative methods as a way of investigating uh, non-numerical data. So we use this a lot when working with people because we can get more information about their personal experiences or, you know, a better idea of the concepts that work behind certain phenomena. Um, So you might use questionnaires with open-ended questions, or another really common example is interviews. Um, And there are certain steps in qualitative research to decide if it's a right fit for what you want to know. Um, So it depends on your question. A lot of times qualitative methods are used for when you want to describe what something is or maybe how something works. So to take the example of interviews, you might record interviews with college students and ask them, how have you maintained contact with friends or met new people on campus during the remote semester? And the researcher or some poor research assistant would transcribe all these interviews. Um, So basically type them out into the words that you can kind of read it and see the trends. And then as you're reading, you might start noticing themes in the responses. These themes are used to categorize the responses so that you can notice trends. Take the following hypothetical responses, for example. So student one says, my friends and I like to get takeout and have socially distanced picnics. Maybe student two says, I just decided that like, I want these five people in my social circle so that I hang out with them without worrying about masks and stuff like that. And then student three says, I just like meet up with people outside and we just don't get close to each other. Uh, You might notice that some of the responses have a similar theme and some don't. So from this data, we might say that uh, participants one and three would fit under the social distance theme because one of them gets takeout and has socially distant picnics and the other one meets up with people outside and he said, you know, they don't get close to each other. And it's interesting how this process works because what's involved here is that say maybe the principal investigator or the, the person leading the research study will go through and read the responses and come up with these categories. So say, okay, well, we have a socially distanced category. We have a, a friend bubble category. And then they'll put this thing together called a code book where they list all of the themes that they came up with and then make a table out of that with all of the interviews they conducted. And then they'll give that code book to other people, to research assistants. 
and the, each research assistant will be responsible for going through and checking for each interview. Did this interview display the socially distanced theme? Did this interview display the mask theme? Did this interview display the Zoom theme? Did this interview display the friend bubble theme? And then what the research assistant's code is checked against what other research assistants code to make sure that there's what we call inter-rater reliability. So multiple people look at the same thing and see the same thing. And that's sort of how we add this element of scientific rigor to it. So then these responses, once we can see the trends, help researchers to build theories, to uh, share participant experiences, and create a foundation sometimes for further research beyond that. So an example of you know using qualitative research as a foundation for further research would be actually a study from Dr. Wong. And what she did was she looked at a ton of resumes and looked at patterns of self-promotion between males and females. So when she did notice certain patterns between you know, female self-promotion and male self-promotion, she decided to create an experimental study. So she created four fake resumes. And uh, the first one might be a man with high levels of self-promotion and then a man with lower levels of self-promotion. The third might be uh, women with high self-promotion and women with low self-promotion. Then she sent these out all over the place and pretty much saw who got positive responses. And these were identical resumes besides being controlled for high self-promotion or low self-promotion or having a typically masculine name or feminine name. But also a lot of researchers do qualitative research for the sake of qualitative research for, as I explained earlier, for sharing participant experiences and giving a platform for that, or for really trying to build theories uh, for the sake of building theories maybe for other researchers to look at or to have a better understanding of a particular phenomenon. Another way that qualitative research is used is in the grounded theory process. So this is a more recent development relatively in psychology. Um, it was first introduced in sociology with a book published in 1967 called The Discovery of Grounded Theory. And this is best explained in contrast with the scientific method that you probably learned about in elementary school, where a scientist goes out into the world, has some sort of observation, um, develops a hypothesis about that observation, tests it, and then uses that hypothesis to build a theory. So the order of events there is sort of one anecdotal observation followed by an experiment, followed by the construction of a theory. So theories are constructed directly from experimental research. In the grounded theory process, what happens is researchers first go out and instead of using their own observations, just anecdotally, they collect them in a more systematic method using qualitative research, going around asking people these open-ended questions to gain sort of foundational knowledge about a field. And then the theories they form are based on these more systematically gathered observations that they then go on to test using other research methods. So Dr. Jerky sometimes uses qualitative methods to investigate questions about discrimination, about racial identity. And we've been asking these questions for a long time, even back to the 1940s with the landmark case of Brown versus Board of Education. You may or may not know that actually psychologists had a nice role to play in the decision of this court case. So doctors Kenneth and Mamie Clark uh, 
husband and wife, two black psychologists, were interested in how black children develop self-esteem. So they put together this really famous doll experiment that you might have heard about in like a Psych 101 class or a social psych introductory class or something like that. So basically, they presented black children with four dolls and these dolls were all identical in everything except for skin color. The children were asked to identify the race of the dolls and were asked which doll they prefer to play with. And then they were asked which doll looks like them. Making this decision really stressed out some of the kids. And it turned out that most of the children, even the black children, preferred playing with the white doll. The psychologist concluded from this that children as young as five years old understand that some skin tones are quote unquote inferior to others. Okay, so what does this have to do with Brown versus Board? Well, this supported the idea that segregation affirmed these ideas of inferiority and negatively impacted children of color. And I mean, this was only a part of Dr. Clark's testimony in the landmark court case of Brown versus Board of Education. So we'll definitely add a link for you to look into that more if you'd like to. Another series of landmark Supreme Court cases related to discrimination and um, racial justice in education actually involves, to a really great extent, the University of Michigan, which is where Dr. Durkee researches and works and where Maddie and I are completing our degrees. And this is the issue of affirmative action. So the history of this issue goes back to 1961, when JFK issued an executive order really mandating that anything that received federal funding had to make sure that their hiring practices were fair with regard to race and ethnicity. This was further cemented with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, religion, sex, or national origin. JFK really urged people, rather than just trying to remove discrimination and have neutral hiring practices, to try and make an active effort to hire people from historically marginalized groups because of all of the disadvantage that they had faced up to that point with things like not being able to have the same amount of work experience because they previously were either discriminated against in hiring or simply weren't allowed to take certain jobs. The question of affirmative action in higher education first reached the Supreme Court in 1978 when the University of California had a certain policy where they wanted to institute quotas for how many students of different races they wanted to admit to their undergraduate program each academic year. And the Supreme Court ruled that such quota systems were not constitutional, that they put other students at an unfair disadvantage because there was a certain number of, say, black students or Hispanic students who had to be admitted each term. However, at this point in 1978, the Supreme Court did acknowledge that diversity is still what they called a compelling interest in admissions and in running a university. So they didn't completely rule out the possibility of using race as a factor when determining admissions. The involvement of the University of Michigan came with two separate landmark cases in 2003, one that focused on undergraduate admissions and one that focused on law school admissions. So the case involving undergraduate admissions dealt with a point system that the University of Michigan used to decide whether to admit a student or put them on a wait list or simply reject them. 
and this is on a 150 point scale with 100 points guaranteeing admission and a score lower than that perhaps putting you on a wait list or admitting you depending on the overall points earned by that class of applicants. And in this point system, how the university instituted affirmative action was by giving students who identified as African American, Hispanic, or Native American a 20-point bonus toward their score to correct for disparities that were in place because of historical disadvantaging of these groups. However, the size of this bonus was brought into question. Students from underrepresented groups received a 20-point bonus, whereas getting a perfect score on the SAT, on the other hand, was worth only 12 points. So this case was taken to the court by some white students who thought that they were disadvantaged in applying because they were not accepted to the university. Um, whereas they argued that black students or Hispanic students or Native American students, perhaps, who had less merit were admitted on the basis of race. And the Supreme Court decided that this system was unconstitutional and unjust because it didn't determine the merit of each individual applicant. It just gave a blanket bonus to everyone who identified as a certain race, rather than looking at sort of the qualitative contributions that each applicant would make toward the campus's diversity. So in the case with the law school, the court upheld the university's affirmative action policy because they took a more holistic view of applicants, looking at each individual applicant's diversity contribution to the student population, as well as the other items in their application. So even though the university had previously stated that their policy was to consider race as, quote, a predominant factor in admissions, this was not struck down like the other case was for granting a blanket set advantage to all students of a particular race. So something else that we talk about with Dr. Durkee is a lack of representation in academia beyond just the student body and into research. This is best exemplified by the long-standing trend of using weird samples in research. Now, what does that even mean? Um, weird is an acronym for societies that are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So like the United States. A study from the University of British Columbia showed that weird people make up 80% of study populations, and a notable number of them are white undergraduate students. So typically, when you're in your introductory psychology course, you usually have to participate in a study for credit in the class, and that's how a lot of researchers get their participant pools. But these researchers from the University of British Columbia argue that college students may be the worst population to generalize with, because in terms of the general population, they're actually often outliers. Additionally, the researchers found that everything from morality to cooperation, even things that we find to be fundamental, like visual perception, actually change depending on what culture you're from and what background you have. So to generalize to the entire world that these are laws of psychology is actually very inaccurate and has been bringing a lot of studies into question. So this trend in psychological research was studied by Dr. Stephen O. Roberts, who is actually the faculty mentor for one of our recent interviewees, Sai Awaluatumi. And in this article, he and his co-authors asked four questions. And I'm going to quote these from the article. How often does psychology publish research that highlights race? 
who edits the psychological research that highlights race, and does their race predict how much of that research is published? Who writes the psychological research that highlights race? And who participates in the psychological research that highlights race? And is the participant's race predicted by the race of the lead author? So they surveyed research from major journals in psychology across five decades, retrieving a total of 26,380 journal articles. They went through and selected all of these that were experimental and then pulled out all of those that highlighted race in the title or the abstract. They identified who was in the samples of each of these studies. They queried who the editors were, who the authors were for these studies, and then conducted all sorts of statistical analyses on these data to determine how much racial diversity is there really in research. And does this affect what research gets published? So one of the major findings of this study was that over the past five decades, there's been significant improvement in the diversity of the authorship of these articles being published. In the 1970s, there were practically no authors of color whose research was published. And now in the 2010s, the proportion of authors of color just about matches the proportion of people of color in the U.S. population. However, in editorship, the representation of people of color still falls drastically short. So when an author of color conducts a study highlighting race, even with a very diverse sample, they're likely still submitting that study to a journal that is run by a white editorial board. So Roberts puts in place several suggestions um, within the article about ways that journals can address this issue. One way would be for journals to implement diversity through all levels of the publication process, and not just authors and participants, but editors and reviewers as well. that are actually representative of the diversity, you know, at least within psychology and more so throughout the country. He also suggests that journals have a system of accountability uh, for actually following through on this commitment to diversity by doing maybe an annual report. And if this report reveals that the journal is, you know, pretty homogenous in some sector, like the editors say, uh, then the journal could produce a report detailing actionable plans for change. He also puts out some recommendations for individual authors. One is to make sure to detail the racial dem demographics of samples in publications, because one finding from past research is that many samples, when they're reported in publications, don't give very much detail about the racial composition of their samples. Providing this information is important to allow further meta-analyses like this one to occur, fully examining how representative various samples are and to allow that to be merited in the review process when applicable. Another recommendation that he made was to include positionality statements in psychological research. So these are more common in sociology or anthropology than in psychology. So like we talked about a couple episodes ago, including a positionality statement means that the researcher or the authors will talk about their own perspectives and how those relate to the research topic they're investigating. And one final recommendation that he made was to include constraints on generality statements. And this is kind of interesting because it relates to the method of these studies. So even if a sample has 
a racially diverse composition, most researchers don't check to see if their outcomes or their results differ by race within each study. So this could help to highlight interventions or effects that have disproportional impact across groups if these analyses were to be conducted and if there are findings that support such a step to report them. So now that we've talked about all this background on racial justice in the United States and education in research, let's move on to our interview with Dr. Miles Durkee. We are here with Dr. Durkee of the University of Michigan. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, could you briefly describe what your educational journey has looked like up to this point? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm a California native, born and raised in Southern California, Pasadena to be specific. Um, so I went to undergrad at Pomona College, which is a small liberal arts school. It's part of the Claremont College Consortium in Southern California. I was a psychology major there. Um, after finishing undergrad, I went straight through to grad school because I graduated during the recession <laughs> back in 2008. So grad school was the ideal option to avoid the job market during that time. So then I went straight into a PhD program at the University of Virginia and completed my PhD in educational psychology, applied developmental science. After that, I then went to University of Chicago to complete a postdoctoral fellowship in human development. And after that appointment, I then came to Michigan to do a second postdoctoral fellowship um, in the psychology department here. And then after that postdoc, I then uh, was transferred into the assistant professor faculty position here at U of M. And I've been in that position now for three years. So you majored in psychology as an undergrad. What kind of drew you to like this field of study of psychology broadly? You know, you're 18, 19, taking all sorts of intro classes. What really stood out to you about psychology that you're like, oh, this is what I want to do? Yeah, so like most college students, I started off as pre-med. I mean, I had it set in my mind, I'm going to be a doctor. My family kind of was reinforcing that too. You're going to be a doctor. Yeah, well, you kind <laughs> so, of got there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, a different type of doctor. Uh, so yeah, so I very much had a, a limited focus on pre-med. Um, but I realized quickly that I was not enjoying the labs in biology, chemistry. Like, I was bearing through it, but I just didn't enjoy it. So immediately after that first semester, I knew that pre-med just was not going to be my passion. Um, so at that point, I just started taking classes in every discipline, anthropology, sociology, psychology. Um, and it was really psychology that really jumped out at me, um, even though each of those disciplines in social sciences are the study of people. Um, and that fascinated me because everything we learned, I could immediately translate back to actual lived experience and other people I knew. And it was just so applied in a way. Um, but really, psychology. Um, really drew me the most. Uh, I appreciated the, uh, the heavy emphasis on, you know, science and the scientific model and the experimental design nature of psychology. Um, and also I feel like the job opportunities might be a little bit easier <laughs> going to psych route. So uh, it was really, I would say the class that really convinced me was actually my first intro to social psychology course. Um, I just loved everything about the course. Um, and at that point I knew for sure I wanted to be a psychology major. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, that is so true. That was definitely what was most exciting about, you know, you get to college and especially with a lot of those um, 
with a lot of those STEM courses, like you're saying, bio, chem, like, I, I definitely felt a similar way as far as like, oh, this kind of sort of applies to people, like cells and, you know, the division of cells, mitochondria, okay, like, I get it, but being able to see that in your everyday life, social psych especially, it was so exciting. So I think that's when it clicked for Zenon and I both was our first social psych class. So kind of going back to when you were talking about your choice of PhD program, going for educational psychology, what was it from psychology that then led you to go down that route? Yeah, so I have to say great mentorship led me down that route um, because I'll be honest, I was a first generation college student, so I didn't know a whole lot about applying to grad school. So I was kind of learning as I went. But fortunately, I had great uh, mentors that encouraged me to look outside of just psychology departments alone and to look at schools of education. So I didn't realize at that point that schools of education actually hire a very large amount of psychologists because so much of our work has to deal with human development. So developmental psychology, how does the brain and mind develop? Um, social psychology, how do different groups of people interact with one another? And both of these are two areas that that work is highly relevant to schools and to teachers and how educational systems function and can be most effective. Um, so just that simple piece of advice to look at schools of education changed my entire trajectory in applying for grad school. Um, so then I started to look at more schools of education. I found that the work in schools of education, in my sense, was even more applied than kind of traditional psych programs, because many of the traditional social psych programs, most of the research is lab studies, where you bring undergrads into a lab, it's a sterile kind of foreign environment, and you kind of create a situation. But in many schools of education, the research is done in actual schools, in classrooms. Um, and once again, like being drawn towards that applied nature, um, schools of ed just kind of filled that interest that I had. Right, there's a very clear path from like, um, like publication to implementation, right? Like very tangible results from the research that you're doing too, I feel, being able to see it in action. Um, kind of going off of that, um, this is a really interesting question because I feel like every researcher has a different uh, kind of approach, but how do you develop research questions? Yeah, that's a good, good question. Um, so for me, it's actually the research itself develops the questions for the next study. So it's very much been this reciprocal effect of as soon as we finish one project, we have so many questions by the end of that project that already informs like the next three or four projects we're going to do. Um, so really looking at kind of what are the, what are the unanswered questions that remain? So my primary research right now kind of looks at the experience of cultural validations and one of the most common particularly is being accused of acting white. Mm -hmm. So essentially this is an identity threat where someone discredits or invalidates uh, your authenticity within your racial group. Uh, this experience is mostly encountered by people of color. Um, and also a second line of research looks at the dynamics of racial code switching. So how people kind of switch the racial profile to emphasize one kind of racial dynamic versus another depending on who they're engaging with. Mm -hmm. So that research naturally just emerged from the work. I mean, I never thought I would be going down that line. Uh, originally, when I applied to grad school, my interests were just racial dynamics in general, kind of broadly, and racial discrimination. But as soon as we I jumped on my first project, uh, my first year of my PhD program, uh, and asking, it was a qualitative project, and asking college students about their racial experiences, so many of the experiences were falling in lines of these identity threats. And a lot of the participants had a hard time classifying is that really racial discrimination or is it not? Because a lot of the times these threats happen for members of their own racial group. 
So some participants weren't sure if they could classify that as racial discrimination or racism, even though they felt the same way and they felt racially discriminated against and challenged. It was kind of this struggle of how to cope with those dynamics. Um, mm -hmm. So that piqued my interest. And from literally that first year, I kind of had a good sense of what my dissertation would be on. And I decided to pursue that route. Um, and I've been studying that topic ever since. So when we talk about um, like acting white, right? What it, and I've gotten to glance at a couple of your papers about it too, but like what it looks like, what that means to people in different racial groups and the implications of this. What are some of the implications that you found of these accusations, either on like a personal identity threat level and or in like a broader sense? Yeah, so um, so from the data alone, I can definitely speak to the interpersonal uh, consequences right. of these accusations. So at the interpersonal level, um, individuals who tend to experience these threats most frequently, it does have a direct impact on their mental health and well-being. Uh, specifically, those who encounter these most frequently report greater depressive symptoms and greater anxiety symptoms, which are kind of two of the critical markers of severe mental health. Uh, so we do see that there's a consequence associated with this. It also has implications to individuals' own racial identity. Uh, so how they see race, the importance and meaning of race to them, and how they uh, affiliate with the racial group. So those who receive more of these messages also tend to report a lower level of racial identity development. That means they don't have as a strong connection and attachment to the racial group, which makes sense because they receive these messages more frequently if people tell them that they're not the right type of member of their group or they're an inauthentic member of their group. So on the broader kind of more macro level, uh, it's still an issue because at the end of the day, these um, insults of acting white, they stem from racial stereotypes and what we perceive as racial norms. Uh, so within American society, for very common, just normative traits, we most often automatically associate those traits with white Americans. So simple things like speaking in a standard American English, kind of without, uh, we would say, an accent or a different dialect of English, or getting good grades or being a nerd, things that are pretty common across all racial groups. Uh, by default, as Americans, we're more common to associate those as the prototypical norms of white Americans. And for individuals who are non-white, we tend to associate the more negative racial stereotypes with those groups. So when members of those groups don't fit those negative stereotypes of their groups, rather than challenging those stereotypes in the first place, we're more likely to just um, exceptionalize the individual or just label them as acting white. So it's their, their fault and it's them that's kind of the deviant rather than challenging the stereotype in the first place. So that's more of kind of the macro level kind of issue that needs to be addressed here is how kind of norms um, play out in our dynamics of how we view and um, perceive each other. That's really interesting to hear sort of how that individual level phenomenon, right, of one individual telling another individual, accusing them of acting white, how that sort of speaks to these larger norms. Um, coming out of your research, do you have any sort of ideas for potential ways to approach changing those norms that you were talking about? Yeah, so one way that we've observed through the data itself is that um, one way that the, I would say the targets of these threats themselves have somewhat control over is to deter being accused of these in the futures, these individuals can begin to racial code switch. Uh, 
So by changing their racial behavior across context and who they're interacting with, that can be a very effective means to avoid being accused of acting white or to be culturally invalidated. So let's say if uh, black individuals with a predominantly black crowd, if they can turn on that kind of cultural competence and those cues to sound, act, and behave in a way that that group would see as authentic for the racial group, then they'll be completely accepted. But at the same time, the individual switched context is now in a predominantly white environment. If they can then switch automatically to that group as well and then sound just like that group and behave in a way, they'll also be perceived as more of an in-group member of that group as well. So one example that I always go to is the prime example is Barack Obama. I mean, former President Barack Obama is an exceptional code switcher. Um, and he developed this skill over his entire lifetime of moving and living in different locations and kind of always being an outsider in each location. He's become very adept at reading a room, reading people, seeing those social norms, and he can switch in real time to then mirror those social norms right back to the person who's, who he's interacting with. So this is a skill set that not everyone is born with. Um, some individuals naturally have a higher aptitude to be able to read people. We call it self-monitoring is a psychological trait that's associated with it. Some people just have higher levels of this. But also it's a skill in that to perfect the ability to then be able to replicate that, you have to practice it over an extended amount of time. Uh, one consequence with code switching is that when individuals try to force it and they're not, having, they're not kind of well experienced at doing it, now the consequences become more severe. That if you're perceived right. as pandering towards race or trying too hard, now you're more likely to receive more repercussions and consequences from the group because they don't really, they won't trust you in that way. Mm -hmm. So that like now I can see so clearly that connection between um, these two interests that you're most excited about right now between acting white and the code switching. Um, you drew such a clear line to those two. Um, and I can see how those are so interconnected. Um, so in one of the studies you looked, we were looking at like kind of like the late adolescence period and how those accusations kind of uh, manifest um, at that point. What, about this like stage of development do you feel is particularly interesting at looking at how um, these, these accusations manifest? Yeah, so I definitely focus on late adolescence slash emerging adulthood. Mm -hmm. So that period of transitioning from high school to college. Um, so developmentally, when we look at kind of the frequency and the rate of these acting accusations over that period of lifespan from childhood to adolescence to late adolescence, so in terms of the literature, the earliest documented reports of children being accused of acting white is very early in elementary school. I believe it was third grade or the earliest qualitative reports of these accusations happening. So across elementary into middle school, those rates of children being accused of acting white, it increases and it hits a peak right around high school. So for most individuals, high school is really the peak in which they experience the most elevated rates of being accused of acting white. And if we look at the kind of natural development of identity in general, it kind of fits with this pattern is as children reach adolescence, uh, their own sense of personal identity and the racial identity is beginning to develop. And one way to develop that identity and what it means to them and how they should behave is to make these social comparisons. So in the process of making these social comparisons, a lot of youth are much more adept at identifying how they're not supposed to behave and what's the wrong way to behave rather than being able to figure out what that racial identity or that identity really means to them. So the kind of the proper ways to behave. So being able to identify kind of the, 
what they're not supposed to do, they're much more likely to make these social comparisons with their peers. And a lot of times it becomes downward comparisons where they then tend to pick on their peers who they see as violating those norms. And they oftentimes accuse them of acting white in a way of helping them try to figure out what their own identity is supposed to be. They're much more likely to make those accusations to other peers. Um, once we get to college, so far out of the, let's see, seven universities that we sampled these acting white accusations at, each of these have been predominantly white institutions. Um, so amongst those institutions, we tend to get a crowd of uh, African-American Latinx students who frequently been accused of acting white in their high school years because um, at these, and many schools are also selective high achieving schools as well. So these are kind of the top achieving students at their schools. A lot of them say because of that reason, they were ostracized or accused of acting white. Now that they're all coming together in college, we have a group of peers who've all kind of had a similar experience at high school, now at the same probably white institution. Uh, so we do see the rates of the acting white accusation do decrease, but even though the frequency of the accusation decreases, the consequences in terms of mental health is still just as severe. So when it does happen, it's likely to happen very intentionally and it still stings and has repercussions in terms of mental health that follow. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that that uh, that that stage would be particularly vulnerable uh, to those effects, right? You're figuring out who you are in first the context of wherever you come from, and then this new context, um, like you're talking about at predominantly white institutions. Um, something that I am really curious about is like how the intersection of gender and race. Um, you know, you hear. Uh, like black men, like calling each other out for being real or not real, right? Um, how does that look as far as like how how gender and race intersect to understand um, the effects of being accused of acting white? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. So intersectionality is a big component of this. And I mean, unfortunately, we've only been able to scratch the surface with intersectionality in terms of race and gender and getting at how these types of identity threats and cultural validations may manifest. Uh, and really, once again, that goes back to the stereotypes. So the typically individuals only encounter these invalidations when they're defying a stereotype. And we know that Black women have a different set of stereotypes than Black men. Uh, Latinx women have a different set of stereotypes than Latinx men. So it's really based on that personal experience of those individuals defying those stereotypes associated with their specific intersectional identity. And once they do that, then they're going to be vulnerable to be accused of um, acting white or being invalidated. So in terms of traits that kind of differ across intersectional identity, uh, we found that in terms of uh, the traits associated with acting white accusation, the style of speech is often by far the most common trait, simply the way you speak uh, and people seeing the way you speak as kind of defying the way that they expect you to speak. Um, so we see that black women particularly report a very elevated rate of receiving this acting white accusation specifically tied to their style of speech, um, more so than black men and also more so than um, Latinx populations. Um, but if we dive into style of speech across racial lines, we also know that for African, for the black population, the style of speech is tied to simply your dialect of how you speak English. So whether you speak English in a standard American dialect, which oftentimes is associated with sounding white, or whether you speak English in a more African-American vernacular, which uh, we've kind of sometimes labeled as Ebonics. But for Latinx individuals, in addition to that dialect of how you're speaking English, also the inability to speak Spanish is also perceived as a clear marker of your cultural authenticity. So for Latinx Americans who may not know how to speak Spanish and are only fluent in English, other Latinx individuals may now perceive them as less authentic, 
because they don't know the native tongue of their culture. It's really interesting to see all the different ways that this acting white accusation plays into these different characteristics like language and everything. Um, so I think sort of moving moving on a little bit to a more broader context. Um, in 2016, after we saw the first appearance of the Black Lives Matter movement, you were able to conduct some research around how Black and Latinx students participated in this movement. Now in 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement has reignited. In what ways can research serve social justice? What do you see as your role in the movement as a researcher? So I feel that research, particularly psychology research, has a very strong relationship with social justice. I mean, if we go back in the day to very classical, classic, pivotal uh, social justice movements uh, in terms of desegregating schools, we have to go to the Brown versus Board of Education uh, Supreme Court lawsuit in the 1950s. Uh, so one of the pivotal pieces of science that helped to lead to that ruling to um, desegregate schools was the classic doll study that was conducted by two psychologists, uh, Kenneth Clark and Mammy Clark, which showed that um, separate but equal leads to a sense of internalized um, oppression and racism in that way, where separate is almost never equal, <laughs> and that having keeping things separate but equal leads to a sense of a uh, sense of inferiority in that case. So now moving forward to present days, uh, even Michigan actually has had a pretty strong position in major Supreme Court rulings. Uh, when you think about affirmative action, I mean, Michigan was a very strong proponent of why affirmative action programs are needed to help keep schools, particularly public institutions, diverse so that they represent and mirror the populations of the states that they're supposed to serve. Unfortunately, that ruling from the Supreme Court didn't go in the University of Michigan's favor. But once again, we had psychologists from our own department at the University of Michigan, particularly uh, Patricia Gurin, who actually testified um, to explain the science uh, to our lawmakers and policymakers. So pulling from that, I think that psychology has a strong and pivotal role in helping to inform um, why uh, social justice initiatives are important and to understand what are the ramifications um, and consequences of um, injustice in our society. Going off of that, if you don't mind my asking, as a Black man studying the Black experience and especially all of the injustices that influence it, do you ever find yourself experiencing like an emotional fatigue? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the work I study, it's based off lived experiences. I mean, mm -hmm. these are the realities of people's lived lives. Um, some of the experiences I also can relate to personally in my own life. Some of them I can't. But at the same time, um, a lot of the work I do is mixed methods. So really, it's the qualitative work where you really get a personalized narrative of someone telling you kind of how deeply they've been affected by these, you know, identity threats and cultural invalidations and how they have a hard time coping with it. So it can oftentimes be a heavy load. Um, so in realizing this, uh, even in society, when I see situations that happen, one way that I help to cope with it is to talk to people. You know, so I oftentimes reach out to whether family members or friends to talk to them about these dynamics, uh, also to get some external perspective. Also oftentimes turn to the literature as one way to try to cope through this to understand, okay, what does the psychological science know and kind of understand about these dynamics? A lot of time on this topic that I study, I mean, that literature is very much in its uh, premature phase. <laughs> There's not a lot of literature on that aspect to inform these specific types of um, threats. But I find that inspiring where it gives me ideas of how to kind of ask the right questions and to how to design new studies to help inform that body of literature. 
As these different contexts that we're talking about come up in your experiences and in your everyday life, how do you work to practice sort of a work-life balance or self-care to um, take your mind off of work sometimes? That's very hard for me, (laughs) to be honest. So I guess my work-life balance is not a clear separation between work and life. I mean, those two are definitely just blended together at this point. a lot of times, even I can think of Thanksgiving, Christmas dinners where, you know, my family may have asked me a question of how work's going or how I'm doing and end up just diving into kind of a new study that we just launched because I feel like right. the findings, once again, they're oftentimes so much applied that it relates yeah. to maybe an experience that my niece or nephew just had. And I want to explain to them, okay, these are the psychological implications that we found. And a lot of times it just goes right over their head and they're like, okay, Uncle Miles, but... I don't know. I mean, the work I do, once again, it's people's lived experience. So I find that um, it's hard to really separate the two. But having like a strong passion for the work, I don't see it as fatiguing. I mean, even though I feel like I'm constantly always working, uh, I enjoy the work. So it doesn't feel very, um, uh, I don't know, laborious in that way or fatiguing because I enjoy the work and I see that the amount of potential there is to really improve the science in this area. Yeah, definitely. It sounds almost energizing to be able to take the context of your work and apply it. This question comes out of um, all the different methods classes I've been taking. And uh, my professors talk about the importance of noticing how identity informs research, right? So how these lived experiences that people have work into the research questions they form, how they frame them and how they frame their work. And also this concept of positionality, right? This set of identities that combine to form a researcher's perspective. How can researchers of all backgrounds, including members of dominant social groups, recognize and acknowledge the influence of their own positionality when they're engaging in research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very important question. And um, to start off with answering that question, that's where I have to give kudos and recognition to qualitative researchers. I mean, because for, you know, for strong, rigorous, qualitative research, that's step one is to recognize your positionality. That, um, and I feel like that's so important to understand what is your lens and how you're asking the questions, designing the analyses and interpreting those analyses. So that is an area where quantitative research, which is the bulk of psychology, has kind of dropped the ball in a sense, where we assume that as quantitative researchers that everything's completely objective, that you know, as long as our p-value is less than 0.05, that that is a significant finding. And not really interpreting how our positionality still plays such a strong effect in how we even design our comparison groups. You know, who is the control group? Why is that a control group? Uh, why are we doing a comparison between two different groups in the first place? Are these two exact completely different lived experiences where we shouldn't be doing that comparison in the first place? So things like that are all situations where positionality is so important uh, that I think on the quantitative side of psychology uh, really needs to be addressed. I think I think my follow-up question would be sort of to to pull it a little bit more of what you just said is how do you think that can be addressed? Yeah, um, let's see. One way to address it is that one we can just be honest in our publications. I mean, I feel like once you get on qualitative research papers, I mean, it's now it's the norm. It's expected that you address your positionality in those papers, whereas that norm is not required in many quantitative papers. Um, So that will be step one that could have major effects um, in terms of the published work and how an audience can kind of receive that work, knowing the positionality that the researcher comes from. Uh, Two, I think also um, 
just familiarity with your population itself can be helpful. So that positionality of, if it's a construct that you're examining, if you kind of have prior background or some kind of cultural competence on that construct in the first place, I mean, that could be an asset to help you kind of understand that dynamic Definitely. better. Um, so that could be expressed explicitly too. I think uh, one kind of, I say bias that psychology has is that we're so focused on being objective, objective all the time, but at the same time, by focusing so heavily on just objectivity, we kind of miss the, the nuances and the power that can be drawn and the insight from having a already background knowledge and a competence on the contract itself through individuals' own personal lived experiences or being amongst the populations that have those lived experiences. So not always being expected to come from a complete outsider to study a phenomenon that you may know nothing about. I love that, actually. Like putting more value on that lived experience as um, motivation for exploring new questions. Um, so let's see. Okay. So race and the way that it affects our everyday lives is at the forefront of not just our conversation today, but in conversations happening all over the country right now. So how has your racial identity affected your journey through academia? Huh, that's a good question. So one, I think my racial identity definitely affected the work. I mean, I'll be honest, if I was a white male doing the same work, that might raise some eyebrows of, huh, <laughs> I'd probably get the question more frequently of, how did you, you know, fall into this line of work? Because right. once again, it kind of goes against the stereotype of people would be, people wouldn't expect a white male to study identity and validations amongst populations of color. Mm -hmm. So that would be one thing. Uh, two, on the other side, uh, I think one kind of gripe I have with psychology is that we still kind of see individuals who study populations that they're affiliated with, we in a, in a way kind of see that as a weakness. So sometimes people call it me-search, as if that kind of work isn't as scientifically valid as if I was studying a foreign population. Um, so in my own experience, I mean, I've definitely encountered, you know, microaggressions, you know, in academia, even amongst my, you know, some of my own colleagues in the department where I don't know if it was intentional, but it was still kind of a, um, in a way, a kind of devalidating the work as if the work wasn't scientific in a way, simply because I'm a member of the groups that I study. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that is a factor that um, should be addressed just openly and discussed um, in the sciences. Definitely. Yeah. And that's a topic we even touched on in a recent interview too, talking about that specific term me search and how it can sort of be applied in a different spin of looking at how experiences can inform and enhance your perspective when you're approaching these issues like you were talking about before. So our next question again relates to sort of the research community and all these different interactions that researchers have with each other. What do you think are some ways that the research community can be more inclusive of academics of color and of other people of color? Yeah, one way is uh, we need to change the norm of a white population being the norm <laughs> of every and every other group compared to white samples. Um, so if we look classically at psychological research, I mean, it really wasn't up until the late 60s and 70s where all the classical studies prior to that, the samples were almost completely white college students. And even before the 60s, they were almost solidly white male college students. Um, but from these samples, uh, 
they were the findings were still generalized to all Americans or all humankind and all just as universal kind of human traits. Uh, but on the flip side, when researchers study uh, ethnic minority population, let's say all black sample, those interrelations can never be made to all individuals. So it's like it's a power dynamic here where those two kind of extrapolations aren't held or treated equally, uh, where um, studies that sample kind of minority populations oftentimes are boxed as a niche population or a subsample. Um, so I'll, I'll just call it what it is. I mean, that's just structural racism. I mean, it really is how, you know, one sample is treated less as norm versus another sample uh, or as a kind of universal experience in the other sample. So, I mean, we should address that right off the bat. And I think by doing that and giving more uh, credibility to populations that kind of deviate against our expectation for a normative white sample, I think that alone will encourage more individuals from marginalized groups to want to participate in the sciences, to join the sciences, because maybe they might find the interest in learning more about their own lived experiences or experiences that affect populations that they feel connected to. Yeah, I I love what you talk about the way that we sample and who whose experiences we are investigating. I'm doing some research on interracial relationships right now and all the studies I've been finding are looking at how like how white people feel about their interracial relationships and not looking into how uh, these experiences affect the marginalized uh, individual within those relationships. And just to add to your point, I mean, I can tell you on just the interpersonal level, um, the amount of times where I've kind of described a research question to a colleague, even we submitted a paper for peer review, and the feedback coming back is that we needed a white control group as kind of the default model group to then see how ethnic minority populations deviate against that normative group. So each time we had to push back and say, no, actually, you know, it wouldn't help the study by having a comparison to white samples because that's not part of the question. Yeah. It's not a comparative study in general like that. It's really to understand the experience amongst these populations. Um, and I can almost guarantee you if we, if it was, the study was flipped and we had a solidly all white sample, we would probably never get the question of you need a black comparison group now to validate the science and to make it scientific in that same way. Right. Yeah, definitely. I have a I have a question, maybe not for the recording, but just as a side question. Um, so this this issue of representativeness um, is this something that because and this is this is more of a question coming out of like my how, all the different methods that I'm learning about in my classes and things like that. Is that something that can sort of be begun to address by um, meta analyses and like combining different studies of different samples in the same effect? Yeah, actually, so uh, one of my colleagues at Stanford University, um, Stephen Roberts, he just uh, published a great meta-analysis that looked at the authors um, of psychological research articles in the top journals in the psych science. Uh, and he looked at, he found that, I mean, clearly there is, you know, underrepresentation amongst, you know, ethnic minority populations publishing in the top tier journals. Um, but also, too, the editor of those journals at the time played a strong role and encouraging more diverse authors to submit their papers, you know. So kind of uh, representation matters, you know, having representation at these positions of power, serving as a sort of gatekeeper really helps to open up the opportunities for to help diversify um, these dynamics. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that answer. It's kind of funny. Our, our most recent interview was actually with one of um, Dr. Roberts' graduate students. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was awesome. 
Um, it was. It's a small world, academia, I swear. It is. It really <laughs> is. Um, and because, I mean, Michigan Psych Department is so large, almost everyone has a connection yeah. <laughs> to Michigan psychology. So how do you hope to see the social psychological study of race evolving generally over the next couple decades? Mm-hmm. So I got to say that, you know, I am very, I'm pleased to see the direction that we're heading into. Um, mostly reflecting on kind of the past and the history and how social psych has kind of treated the aspect of race in the past. So outside of the explicit kind of racial scholars within social psychology who really were examining the kind of nuances of racial dynamics, as a field in social psychology in the past, I have to admit that the treatment of race was problematic because race was oftentimes dwindled down to just a single self-report variable of what is your racial group. And based on that single variable, authors kind of went two different routes. They either simply controlled for race by adding that one variable to their regression analyses to say, look, we controlled for race. Or on the flip side, if they ran a simple group comparison and they found a difference across race, now those findings will be framed away as if it's a a racial study, (laughs) which a lot of times you can kind of see that that's not kind of the way the study was designed or kind of, you know, the, the way that the study should have been treated in that way. So now we're starting to see much more focus on the actual lived experience of race, that we can't simplify race down to just a single self-report variable because not every member within that same racial group has the same lived experience. I mean, there's so much more heterogeneity within racial groups and that lived experience than there is between groups. So we really have to jump in to understand more of those dynamics of that lived experience. So race is at best self-report racial indicator. It's just a rough, very rough proxy but to actually improve the science, we actually have to dive much more deeper into the actual lived experience of those racial dynamics. So that's kind of one area where I feel like my work helps to kind of inform that by looking at these dynamics of these identity threats and these cultural validations where one, not every member of the same racial group experiences these threats, but even those who do experience the threat within the same racial group, they can internalize these threats in very different ways. So an individual, let's say, who's hyper adept at code switching they can receive that threat and probably cope with it very effectively because then they can code switch and kind of alleviate that threat from happening in the future. But on the flip side, another individual from that race who may not be as adept at code switching, that threat can be much more stigmatizing and burdensome because now they have to really have struggled to deal with that and internalize that type of dynamic. So in our future studies that we have coming down the road, we're actually going to test these experimentally to see how do individuals cope in real time with these invalidations um, and how do they implement and utilize code switching. Wow, that's great to hear not only the ways that your research is moving forward and advancing on these questions, but also how, even at the level of the way that we measure these variables in psychology, right, how these things are developing to be more accurate and more inclusive of different people's experiences. We still have a long way to go, though, but at oh, least yeah. we're, moving, we're moving in the right direction, though, which is definitely happy to see. Definitely. So how has studying psychology influenced how you see other people in the world? Um, it's definitely made me, I mean, I guess just in general, I was attracted to psychology because I've always been fascinated by human behavior. So now, you know, spending my entire career up to this point, studying more, you know, in depth on human behavior, um, it's definitely informed the way that kind of view social situations. So things like, I mean, even the construct of microaggressions, you know, so psychologists really helped me. One, we, we coined the term, uh, Chester Pierce back in 1970 coined the term. He was a clinical psychologist. Um, and then Darrowing Sue in the early 2000s then also popularized it. Um, and his lab created a scale to measure micro, uh, microaggressions. But even these instances, so 
prior to kind of psychology contributing, we knew these simple, subtle threats were occurring, but as a society, we didn't have a terminology really to classify these types of threats, you know? Uh, but psychology really has pioneered that and given a framework and a lens to help examine these types of, these types of threats that are too subtle to be called as like racism in a way or just blatant racism. And sometimes they're so subtle where the target of these experiences really has a hard time of coping with it because it's subtle enough where they're not sure, should I react? Is this a problem? Am I just overthinking it? Is it all in my head? Um, so I really sit there and ruminate with these dynamics when let's say a situation where me as a black male, if I were to enter an elevator and there happened to be a white woman in the elevator and she clutches her purse closely as I enter the elevator. I mean, at that point, it's so subtle of an instance where I have to decide should I say something? Should I check her comfort level? Should I not say something? Should I see that as discrimination? Uh, should I try to downplay and kind of assume that maybe she's just cold? <laughs> she clutched her first because she was cold. Maybe the AC was high in the elevator. It's just so many ways that now that's taking cognitive resources to have to think about that situation. And psychologists have really helped to kind of uh, understand the science of that and the repercussions that stem from those experiences that are very common in our day-to-day -day lives. Right. I mean, I'm thinking about how closely psychology and that that cognitive load, right? Like just these extra things like this, this, you know, gaslighting that um, other people get to not have that extra stress. Right. So what would be one piece of advice you would give an undergrad who wants to do what you're doing someday? Oh, one piece of advice. Uh, stay in school forever. <laughs> <laughs> No, but <laughs> um, on a serious note, um, I mean, the good thing about psychology is the study of human behavior. So I feel like there's a topic within the broad field of psychology that can appeal to almost everyone. Right. So it really is a matter of fact of if you know that you kind of want to develop a career of being a researcher and pursuing a topic, find a topic that one, you're very passionate about and a topic that as you wrap up one study, all it does is open up additional questions so that you can start to build an entire research career around that topic. Um, I mean, that does help if it's a novel topic that hasn't been explored very much, if you're kind of carving out new terrain, then that makes that easier because there's just so many unanswered questions. But even if it is a topic that's been, you know, very well studied, then you kind of need to, especially if you plan to become an academic and a researcher, you kind of need to find that niche of what is the new spin I can put on this that kind of provides new scientific knowledge that hasn't really been investigated yet. And make sure that that's a niche that you're actually really passionate about. I would say the one mistake is that researchers in an attempt to get cited a lot and to get published easily mm -hmm. tend to jump on hot topics. But by jumping on the hot topic, so for the purpose of just getting published in a top tier journal, if you're not really passionate about that topic, you're going to face burnout. I mean, after about, you know, doing a few studies on the topic, you're going to get bored and want to move on to something else. And then you'll have to basically redefine yourself in that new topic. I love how much you emphasize um, the, the creativity that goes into finding your research topic. Like you said, if it hasn't been, if nobody's asked this question yet, like follow that, that excitement. And if somebody has asked this question, what are they missing, right? How else could you spin it? Um, I love that emphasis on like a generative uh, approach to, to finding questions. All right, so then the last question that we have as a part of the interview is, um, what's your favorite book that you would want to recommend to our listeners? Okay, so I'm gonna actually list two. So yeah, give it to my, us. Yeah, my favorite book of all time is the Autobiography of Malcolm X. So 
Man, I just love that book. So I first <laughs> read that book when I was, whew, I think I was in elementary school. So I, it was the book was far above my head. I mean, a lot of things that just didn't get yet at the age. Um, I ended up rereading the book in college and I reread it again um, in grad school. And each time I reread the book, um, having, you know, greater cognitive development and more lived experience, I kind of picked out additional nuances from that book. Um, and just the complete life transformation that Malcolm X, you know, experienced and how he educated himself. And, you know, to a point that he could debate our greatest scholars from the greatest universities in the United States and hold his own. Um, and a lot of times academics actually get frustrated because they had such negative expectations and stereotypes of, uh, Malcolm X coming to debate them without, you know, credential degrees. But so I really respect his ability to self-educate himself. Um, okay, so the psychology book that I would recommend is uh, called Black Skin, White Mask by Frantz Fanon. Um, it was published in the 1950s. And I love that book because that book, even though it's a little dated, it's still the information that book is still so timely. And he really sets the groundwork for racial code switching and these racial performances that many ethnic minority individuals in our society all across the world are still expected to perform in order to be accepted, validated, and just recognized by the majority group um, in most nations across society. Uh, so, and he was speaking from colonial times where um, France Fanon was a, um, a, West, a French West Indian um, who actually immigrated to France before immigrating to the United States. Um, and at that time, he's from Martinique and his island was still colonized by the French. So even though, you know, colonization has uh, declined, we still see that the same repercussions of there being a prototypical normal, normative group and um, other groups outside of that norm still persist to this day. And culturally, we still see this pressure of other individuals to ascribe to kind of white Eurocentric norms in society. Those sounds so cool. I love what you talked about with the Malcolm X autobiography, um, how the, the same story at different levels, like we can handle it a little bit more, we can draw different things from it. Um, so I love that idea of like returning to uh, books that have had a big impact on you too. Well, that is actually all that we have for you. So thank you so much for, for speaking with us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Durkee, for joining us on the podcast and sharing all of your experience and wisdom on these topics with us. Make sure to subscribe to the show. So give us a follow on Facebook at pre-occupied psych podcast or on Instagram or Twitter at pre-occ podcast. Visit our website at pre-occupied.com or shoot us an email to hosts at preoccupied.com. If you have any referrals to a psychologist that we just have to talk to, or just if you want to check in, chat. And we will see you next time on Preoccupied. Now, we're going to get weird with it.